Romans chapter 3. I'll read verses um, 19 through 22. I'll say that oftentimes I'll put in the bulletin in the early part of the week the text that I am ambitious to preach. Uh, with a book like Romans, sometimes I don't make it through all the verses I think I'll make it through. Uh, and that is a good thing. Uh, as we sit in this blessed section of this blessed book, and Paul, rightly through the Holy Spirit, relays to us truth regarding the means by which you and I are delivered from sin. I'll read verses 19 through 22. I know it seems like I'll stop sort of right in the middle of a thought, but we will have another Sunday by God's grace. And even if we don't, we'll all know it better if we're in glory together. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. And that is where we'll stop. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's holy word. Lord, as we come to you this morning, our longing is that we might be those who might rightly not only hear, and understand but that you might grant us such an understanding that we can also be those who communicate that is a working, functional, practical, life-changing knowledge of your word. And so by your spirit, give us an understanding that goes beyond language that is part of your work of sanctification. And so renew in us new minds, new hearts, all for the sake of glorifying your name here on earth. All of this we ask. In the name of the one whose righteousness is ours by faith to all who believe, Christ's own name. Amen. Now, many years ago, at the great hymn writer Horatius Bonar wrote a hymn that we have sung here before many times, and that encapsulates well the sentiment of this particular section of the epistle that Paul wrote to the church in Rome as he longs to go to Spain to be a missionary with this same gospel. In that hymn, Not What My Hands Have Done, this is what he writes in the first three verses. It will serve as a, a kind of introduction this morning. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. 
No other work save thine, no other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. Now this is the blessed prayer put to song of the one who knows and loves Jesus Christ. And we as Christians must every Sunday we gather in his presence realize that we may bring an offering of song, of capital. We may bring our hearts, but none of those things count for anything if Christ's righteousness is not first imputed to us. He is the good giver, and we give in response. Now, as Paul is writing to the Romans, he is reminding them that both Gentile in chapter 1 and Jew in chapter 2 have nothing to bring. And in fact, not only do they have nothing to bring, either by works of law given and revealed in nature or law given and revealed in the Ten Commandments and in the Mosaic Covenant, but they don't desire to bring an offering in the first place. And so man is locked, under, trapped, helpless in that estate of sin and death. This is so obvious to everyone on the face of it. Even the pagan, even the heathen understands that there is a problem that goes to the very root and marrow of who they are. There is a misery that we cannot escape. And yet we psychopaths, right? We crazy fools think that through the same human methods and efforts we can flee from the wrath of God that is to come. And as we sing and as we read, there is nothing that we can do to help ourselves. And so when Paul writes to those who are under the law, he is writing to those who are in the realm of the law. And whether you admit it or not, both saint and sinner, is part of a system that was established by God in creation that cannot be escaped. And in order for a man to be justified in the sight of God, something must be added to his defense beyond what he is able to provide himself. And that is what I want to look at this morning. A righteousness that is divine, that is laid hold of by faith as the solution to our wanton fleshly rebellion. Two points that I want to make then in this short text. The first, the problem of wrath. The problem of wrath. And then secondly, the solution is righteousness. The solution is righteousness. Now, as we look at this problem of wrath, I've said it again, but I feel like it's one of those sections where, like when you're mowing the lawn, as I was growing up and did every Saturday, all day, yard work with my dad, I learned a lot. And one of the things I learned was whenever you're mowing the grass, we had a a walk-behind pneumatic lawnmower, that you always put the wheel on the section of grass that was last cut, right on the edge. And so there's always some overlap on the deck. And the reason you do this is to make sure you cut it beautifully, and it all gets cut. And I guess I'm a stickler for that still. 
When it comes to moving through, especially a book like Romans, there's always a little help in doing some overlap. And so even though I've already covered verses 19 through 20, and I did so two weeks ago, and I went back and looked at 13 and 18 last week, I want us to be very clear what the Scripture says, not just Paul in the book of Romans, because all of Scripture is given to us by the Holy Spirit. It is all God-breathed, and it doesn't come from men. So when Paul is writing, he is writing on behalf of the Word made flesh who by his Spirit gives us truth. This is Christ's truth, and this is what he says in 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under or in or in the realm of the law. Now, who is in the realm of the law? Everyone that's ever lived. All who are made by God and for God are born into a system of law. And for this reason, the law has something to say both to Jew and Gentile as the two categories that Paul has already spoken of and to in this epistle. To the Gentile, he sits within the clear view of God through natural revelation. It is a clear but incomplete picture, and it presents to him a God who is angry with him because of his sin. And so in light of that wrath that he feels from God, he suppresses, he pushes it down. Remember the beach ball analogy? And then endeavors to exchange that truth for a lie. Whether it is Islam or Judaism or Hinduism or secularism, those are all systems. They are religious, cultic systems. And they are systems, and they have to be systems, because they have to replace what is there in their hearts that keeps saying, you need to repent. You must repent. Well, the Jew is under that same clear revelation, but not just in nature, but in the scriptures. In all that the Old Testament promises, prior to the coming of Christ, they had it all, and all of it points to Christ. And yet, even though it points to the need of forgiveness of sins... They did not seek forgiveness by mercy, but to be justified through the keeping of the law. And even then, not sincerely and completely. And the law here refers to the Old Testament system, the Mosaic Covenant, and specifically coming out of the Ten Commandments. And for this reason, let's look. Now we know that whatever the law says... It has a speech to it. And it is not a dead speech. It is a living and active speech. It is active revelation. The Old Testament doesn't stop talking because the New Testament has been written. The law that is revealed to us is used by God to actively condemn and to point out how you have gone astray. Or for what reason you are being condemned. And so it has a living, ongoing testimony against sinners. It speaks to all men, Jew or Gentile. Therefore, all men are in the realm of the law. Now, it is not per se the law that condemns. It is God, and the standard by which he judges and condemns is the law. That is the standard. And so when we say or ask, by what standard, this is the standard by which God judges all men and angels, all men and angels. All created beings are judged by the revelation of God given to us clearly. And this is what it says as it relates to judgment and sin. Just prior to this section, 
Paul's defense of the righteousness of God is this, that God is not unjust to be the judge of those who cannot help but sin. Grace is not a bar, we see this in verses 1 through 8, that can be lowered. This is often what we ask for, right? Children, oftentimes this is the way you deal with the law that is expressed to you by your parents. But dad, maybe just this one time, can we bend the rules? No. Of course not. For the righteous standard of God cannot be broken. Now, I'm not talking about things that are in addition to the law, right? Maybe you can eat half of the peas that are on your plate. I'm talking about the things that are commanded in Scripture by God. But dad, just this one time, can I not bear false witness against my siblings? And you believe me? No! Can I not lie? Can I not take that thing that I saw in the store and make it my own even though I don't have it? No, we've got to take it back. There is a standard that cannot be lowered. Grace is a bar that cannot be lowered to the cries of men with bad attitudes that in the face of God's judgment are found guilty and because they don't like it, they try to get God to grade on a curve. But my friends do X. Oh, I'm so sorry. You're right. Let's just... No, that's not the way it happens. I remember my freshman year in college, physics one, which was one of those weed-out classes, and then we got our first exam. The average out of 100 was a 37. I got a 14. And that was a C plus. A 14 out of 100. What was that professor showing me? I own you. <laughs> You don't know physics. I, I didn't know physics. Would it be right for me to say, well, professor, I, I, I'm ready to go design bridges now? Uh, no. I'm sorry. You're not ready. And this is what men are asking God. Would you please, please grade on a curve? But how can God, who is righteous and just in all of his ways, be anything other than a just judge? In fact, it would be far more terrifying for us and all of humanity for God to say, sure, I'll grade on a curve. For what would be required for that to happen? That God would be unjust, that he could take a bribe, that he himself is not holy. But that is not Yahweh. It is every other god of men, right? They're willing to beg, borrow, and steal to barter. It's Zeus. It's Mars. It's Allah. It's the god that the Jews worship who is not the god of the Bible. It's every other god that is made after the image of men. And so what Paul is calling the saints to is an exalted God-honoring view of the righteousness of the triune Lord who has revealed himself to be a just true, and sovereign judge. God's holiness cannot be approached or impeached through barter. And it cannot be satisfied with the things that we have in our hands, the arsenal at our disposal to give a defense. We do not have enough. 
for the sentence is always guilty. And that leads me then to this next problem, the problem of wrath, that God is holy, that we are all condemned, and that men are universally sinful and guilty. If the Jews, remember Paul is continuing logically through this section, if the Jews, whom he's just spoken of in chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, who had the law, the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Testament stuff, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, if they fail to be vindicated through the law, then it follows that no one can be vindicated through the keeping of it. Just by having it, it is not enough. And so the list of sins and expression of human depravity in verses 13 through 18, of which I preached last week, is regarding the Jews. They have seen the law. They have seen the tabernacle. They have seen the temple. They have seen all that God has revealed of himself to them. And they still did not believe. Because the law is not a sufficient thing whereby in our keeping of it, as those who are in the law system and in the realm of the law might come to God and say, look at what we have done. For how much keeping of it is enough? Instead, the law lays low. It reveals to us that there is nothing that we can bring before God and say, look at what I've done for you. For what do the scriptures say of our good deeds? They are but filthy rags. Why is that? Because we are not only those who do not do righteousness, uncorrupted righteousness in our natural state. But we are also those who despise God in our sinful state. There is nothing in us that longs to glorify God. And for this reason, men are not only accountable to the Lord as judge, but we are shown by the law to be guilty. This is what Thomas Schreiner writes in his commentary. Paul's point is that all people without exception have no arguments to plead in self-defense before God. They all deserve condemnation and judgment. Think of it in the, the terms of the law court. And there is the prosecution, oftentimes the state, and they have a case. Maybe there's someone on trial for murder. And that person pays someone, or sometimes counsel is provided, to argue in their defense And the prosecution has presented an airtight case. There is proof. There is video evidence. There are multiple witnesses. And everyone places that man there at that time, at that day, with the weapon, having been recorded, I'm going to kill the guy. It's all there. It's an airtight case. And there is nothing that the defense can argue. All the evidence is against him. And there he sits upon the stand and there is nothing he can argue. What will be the sentence? Open and shut. Guilty. 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 This is what it is like for us who rely upon the works of the law for salvation. We show up to court. We put on a nice suit. And the whole thing is stacked against us. We are stuck awaiting our sentence. We are condemned without any hope for defense to plead on our behalf. 
There is no hope then to be justified as those who are born under the law sin, actually sin, in our lives and so stand before God. Look at verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh, that means no human, no, none of us, will be justified in the sight of God for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's it. And we know what the knowledge of sin does. It does not bring new life. It only brings rebellion and points that rebellion out. It shows us what rebellion looks like. So then the question is, what more can be said? By the deeds of the law, no man can be justified in the sight of God. Instead, the law only brings us to a state of our own knowledge of our own sin but not freedom from it. Knowledge of sin without freedom from it, and this is what I wrote in my notes, is a hell of a place to be. And I'm not being crass. It is a living hell. Think of it in your own life. You've been tempted to sin and you sin. And for that moment of guilt, prior to being aware of and reminded of the grace of God, you are sitting there for a moment, and you understand the weight of your sin. It's hell. And the reason why I say that is this. Hell is not the absence of God. Hell is the presence of God without mediation. Heaven is the presence of God through the mediator, Jesus Christ. And every person you've ever met that is in their sins is in a state of living hell. This is why bookstores are filled with books about how to get out of that living hell through your mind, <laughs> through this religion, through that technique, through breathing, through yoga, what a, stretching your way to heaven. I mean, really? This is, we'll try everything, right? By hook or crook. We'll try it all. But the answer is righteousness. And that brings me to my second point. In light of this living condemnation, the solution is righteousness. Schreiner writes again in his commentary on this section, the larger section of verses 21 through 26, but in particular here, the saving promises of God have not been fulfilled via keeping the law, since both Jews and Gentiles fall short of the glory of God. Both groups have replicated the sin of Adam in their own history. Nonetheless, God has fulfilled his saving promises through the death of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a reader of the Bible, in terms of time, you have the gospel right at the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, they blamed one another. God comes to them and he promises enmity. That is, God will fight on behalf of his children against the seed of the serpent in order to bring about a people, a family, a nation. Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you, he's speaking to the serpent, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he, that is the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What is that 
what in the world is this myth? <laughs> right? It sounds like all the stories you read when you're a homeschooler and you read of Greece and Rome and how the, the city of Rome was founded by the two brothers and all these fantastical things. But here is Satan. He comes to man and woman in the garden and he tempts them with a proposal. God is holding out on you. Get for yourself what God says he will give you. But he's not going to do it because Satan is bitter in his heart towards God because he is not God. He's beautiful, but he's not the beloved son. And that toxic trait of thinking infected the mind of the woman, and the man did nothing to stop it. And so every single one of us is born with that tendency not to seek God's ways, but to seek our own. Now, the solution is righteousness. But this is what Satan would have us think. It is what your hands can do. It is what you can invent. It is what you are able to do in your own power. But at the end of the day, what are we left with? We're left with lots of little empty cisterns that cannot hold water. People, ideas, possessions... We drink them down, we leave them hollow, and we ourselves are empty. But here in verses 21 through 26, now I'm not going to go all the way through 26, just these first two verses in this section, we find the beating heart of the epistle, as some commentators call it. And in specifically in verses 21 through 22, we see two things as it relates to the solution that is righteousness. The first is that it is a righteousness that can only be given by God. It must be divinely given. We see that in verse 21, and then in verse 22, we see that it must be received by faith. Now, the gospel is singular in its offering of Christ's righteousness as the gift that justifies sinners when they could not and would not help themselves. Now, through Christ Jesus, the saving righteousness of God has been revealed and is freely offered, which is why Christ in the gospel says, look, just come. If you come to me, I will not say no. Now, Christ is not begging. He is speaking of the free nature of that offering. We also know that no one comes unless the Father draws him by the Holy Spirit. But you and I go to Christ for what reason? Because the Spirit teaches us that that is where salvation is found. There is no other name in heaven or on earth whereby you and I may be saved. It is only the name of Christ. Now when we say the name of Christ, we mean all that Christ has to offer. The person and work of Christ. And in this section, verses 21 and 22, and then later again we see it in verses 25 through 26. You have to Wait a couple weeks for that one. The righteousness of God is revealed. Now, what does that mean? Well, Schreiner in his commentary, I think, rightly speaks of it as a time. Now, the righteousness of God. Remember, he is writing to Gentile and Jew, and specifically the Jewish problem that it is not through the keeping of works that men are saved. But now that Christ has come as the substance 
the final revelation of God, the clearest picture of the plan of salvation, the person and work of Jesus Christ, has now been revealed. And though all the world lay under the weight of sin, their rebellion shown, their defiance certain, Christ has come. This is why the Christmas story is so important. And on that night when the angels appeared to the shepherds who were keeping watch of their flocks by night, they didn't come and say, hey guys, guess what? Something cool's about to happen. It was the heavenly host that burst forth as the fabric of what is material and immaterial in this universe that God has made. The heavens broke forth upon the earth and sang before a group of shepherds and they announced to them the birth of the one who is able to unite heaven and earth at last. The righteousness of God is revealed. In time, and not only in time, but in contrast to the law. Now, that does not mean that the law is opposed to the gospel or grace. Because here, when Paul says law, he means the whole of the old covenant. And when I say old covenant, I don't mean the covenant of works. I mean the dispensations of the one covenant of grace that are in the Old Testament. And one of the things that you need to understand as you endeavor to rightly discern and understand the scriptures is that the Messiah who is clearly revealed in the New Testament is concealed in large part in the Old. Now, the revelation of the Messiah in the Old Testament is often referred to like that slowly. Some of you have the Christmas cactuses. Ours are blooming in Thanksgiving. I don't know why. But for weeks, these little buds have been forming on the end of these beautiful leaves, this succulent that's in our home. And at last, in the past week, these little tiny buds have burst forth in these soft pink blooms. They're beautiful. Blooms in the fall and winter. Testimonies of God's grace in creation. That at the right time, all of the DNA that is in that bloom and in that bud bursts forth in the incarnation of Christ Jesus. That's why we sing that hymn, Lo, how a rose air blooming. It is a metaphor for Christ coming in the flesh. This is what heaven had been waiting for. That for 4,000 years, what was promised in the garden had come true. Christ, the substance. When I say substance, I mean the main course the primary component of what was offered in all of God's covenant promises had become flesh and blood, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And that is what the Old Testament pointed to. It's not another testimony about someone else. It's not a series of gods having to adapt to the sins of men and their failures. That's dispensationalism. It is contrary to the heart of the gospel of the Bible. No, no. It is one covenant, 
And that is what Paul means when he says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Have you ever noticed that even in your own personal Bible readings, when you go to the Old Testament, you say, that sounds so much like what the apostles were saying in the New Testament. You're like, yes. How did Christ preach the kingdom? How did the apostles preach the kingdom? Because they went to the Old Testament and they said, when Abraham meets Melchizedek, Paul writes, he sees the greater priesthood because the greatest figure of the Old Testament, Abraham, pays tribute to a priest not born of Aaron, but who is greater than the priesthood of Aaron. Christ is of the order of Melchizedek. How is that possible? Because God has in his sovereign superintendence developed ever before a life was lived on earth, before history began, before time and space were created, he laid down that plan of redemption. And what we are seeing is it is unfolding so that when we get to the incarnation of Christ, we do not find plan C. We find the fulfillment of that one plan of redemption. Righteousness apart from the law. That is, that for you and I, who are in that area of the law, all of a sudden... Something can now be submitted in evidence for the defense. The case is closed. You are guilty. What is that then element, that evidence? What is given to the defense whereby you and I may not receive that sentence of guilty? It is the whole work of Christ on our behalf. It is all of it. It can only be given by God. So when you go out and you preach or teach, and I mean small p preach, right? You're, 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 you're sharing the gospel hard. Your, your arms are moving around a little bit. Right? What may I do to be saved? Because that's the question, right, at the end of the day. Tell me what to do. What must I do in light of the word of God? Look at verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith. It's the righteousness of God. It's not the righteousness of men. It's not the faux sophistication of secularism. It is truly God's righteousness. It comes from him. And because it comes from him, he accepts it as truly righteous. But it can only be received by faith. That is the instrument. What must you do then to be saved? That's the question. We see that in the scriptures, don't we? Tell me what must I do to be saved? You must believe and lay hold of Christ by faith. And when you do that, from faith to faith, remember Romans chapter 1? <clears throat> For in it, 
Let me just start in 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. Really, 20 and, or 21 and 22 are repetition of this very section. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, you may not remember, it's been a number of weeks ago. When I looked at verse 17, this is what I said. From faith to faith. The instrument whereby the righteousness of God is given to us is we lay hold of it by faith. And when we do that, it isn't like this sort of growing reading on a chart, like when a, a, a nuclear power reactor goes on and the energy sort of grows and you see the little graph going up and up and up. When you lay hold of the work of Christ by faith, it is 100% the work of Christ given to you. It doesn't come over time. We are sanctified over time. But as soon as we believe upon the righteous works of Christ, we can die in that very moment, right? Like the thief on the cross. When you get to paradise, do not forget me. And what does Christ say to that thief in a moment? What had that thief done? He was dying for capital crimes. And yet Christ says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Why? Because Christ's death is sufficient to be counted righteous in the sight of a holy God. And so it really boils down to this one statement. <laughs> but we need the background. We need the doctrine. We need that balloon to be filled all the way up. Here it is. Take hold of Christ's righteousness by faith. Believe, and you shall be saved. Let's pray. Lord.